Welcome everyone to episode 60 of the 25 Live. My name is Jim Bernica. My special guest this week is Dr. Brian Orman. So Brian is an assistant professor at Wilson College of Textiles, which is part of North Carolina State University. He's a double alumni earning his bachelor's in polymer and color chemistry and his PhD in fiber and polymer science. So what we're going to discuss in this episode is all sorts of different textile testing that he's done using his uh, man and simulate test, uh, MIST for short, particulate blocking hoods. We're going to talk about um, particulate resistant PPE and uh, also touch on these fluorine chemicals, the, the PFOAs and the PFAS as well. So without further ado, let's bring Dr. Orman in. All right, welcome everyone to this week's episode of the 25 Live. My name is Jim Bernica. My special guest this week, Dr. Brian Orman. How you doing? Good afternoon to you. Hey, Jim. Thanks for having me uh, on the podcast. Uh, doing pretty well. Uh, hopefully you are too. I'm, I'm not bad. I'm not bad. And, and again, thanks for joining us. I want to start with just how you got involved with working with firefighters. Because it's not something you, you probably grew up and said, I, I want to do this. But, you know, but at some point you realize... Hey, this is kind of cool. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, funny, funny story about that. I, uh, I was actually, I think I was moving or something recently, a couple years ago, and looking in a box, I uh, found a, a book that I had from when I was, I'm going to guess, I don't know, four or five, something like that. It's actually, I have it on the, uh, the, the uh, challenge coin board that I have. And it's called like Little Squirt, the Red Fire Engine or something like that. And I opened that book up, hadn't seen it in years, opened it up. And uh, in, in there, I wrote, this is my favorite book, or I love this book or something like that. And it was just so weird to think about because, you know, I, like you said, I, you know, you don't, I don't think people normally realize or, or like aspire to come in and work in, in firefighter research type stuff or realize that that's where you're going to end up. And that was the case for me. Um, you know, I started, what, 2000. 2007, I guess. I started, uh, no, 2003. I started at the, the uh, at NC State uh, in my undergrad and uh, did my, my degree in, in polymer and color chemistry and really focused on analytical chemistry and measuring you know, how much is there of a chemical you know, on a fabric, things like that. Um, and then decided to go to grad school, stayed uh, at NC State, uh, basically kind of fell into uh, the center that I'm working in, the Textile Protection and Comfort Center. Um, and it was just completely by happenstance. Uh, so I fell, fell into that. And, and with my background in uh, kind of the, the chemistry side of things, uh, they had just gotten a project awarded. Uh, I think it was a, one of the first, uh, right after 9-11, right after there was an organization uh, set up uh, that, that had some funding. And they wanted to put a hazmat layer inside the firefighter uh, turnout suit. And to do that, uh, they had to go and, and go out. I think they had to go to Canada to do the testing, uh, the full system level test. And so when they had that project, they realized that, hey, we need this capability in the US that not just, um, you know, not just academics could use, but the government, the industries, all that kind of thing. And so they ended up going to get, you know, this, this kind of government set aside to build our man and simulant test facility. And that paid for my grad school. Um, so I really came into working in our center as a grad student and, you know, not knowing anything about the fire service, not knowing anything about hazmat, 
um, operations and things. And I absolutely fell in love with it. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing. Uh, I think I'm, I consider myself lucky, you know, every day to be able to work, not just with something that uses what I learned and what I, you know, my degree is in that kind of thing, but also to be able to know that the work that we're doing actually makes a difference. Um, you know, that's, that's a, I think that's like the only thing or the, one of the most important things that anybody could ask for uh, in, a, in a job that they do. And uh, so started with the, the hazmat side of things. And then as the, the cancer kind of concerns came up, started to move more in that direction and, and really started focusing on kind of the exposures and reduction of exposure and, and understanding what those chemicals can do to your body and, and what ones are there and all this kind of stuff. And it's just kind of, it's grown from there, um, from looking at chemicals to particulates to cleaning, care, all of it. And uh, so I, I never quite know what I'm going to be working on from one day to the next. It's, it just kind of has, has gotten so big. Um, but it's, it's something I really enjoy. Um, so glad I can, I can work with the, you know, the, the people in the fire service. Well, we're all glad that you're doing this as well, because it's, it's true. Like, I think we talked before, a lot of researchers, their stuff just ends up in a book somewhere. And, and, you know, there's no, a lot of times practical applications and everything that you are doing, we're seeing the results and they're actually changing the way we do stuff, you know, right now. It's a, it's a pretty quick from where you're working on stuff to where, you know, it's now I'm, I'm wearing it and stuff. Yeah, it's really amazing. Um, you know, from it, from from developing new products, uh, improving existing products, um, all the way to one of the things that you know we work a lot with is just the standard methods and standard requirements, and you know working through NFPA and ASTM and and making sure you know and we we focused on a number of projects where we didn't actually produce something uh, that was a, a piece of gear or new you know new new development that way. But we focused on making the methods and the standards better so that it affected, you know, every piece of gear that's out there. And so, you know, you can, you can really make some wide impacts by, by doing that. And that's, you know, we try to mix both of those in um, and, and try, to, try to make products that can help people um, with, with not just, you know, not just to be technical successes. You know, we can run it through a test and say, yes, this works great. But if, if the, the people on the ground, if the firefighters don't want to use it or if it doesn't fit or if it changes something that you have to do, yeah, we have to make sure that we, we take that into account. And so that's one of the things that I really enjoy the most is being able to get out of our lab. You know, I, I enjoy working in the lab, but it's so much more uh, rewarding to be, you know, on the fire ground, uh, in the training centers, uh, at the stations, just, just you know, working hand in hand with firefighters. Absolutely. So you, you kind of touched on it earlier, at least you mentioned it, but I wanted you to go in a little bit more in depth with your, your man and stimulant, stimulant test. Yeah. So the, the whole mist. Could you kind of explain to our listeners what that actually entails? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, how much time you got? But uh, I, I probably, uh, you know, like I said before, I fell into this, and we, we built our our man and simulant test facility, and essentially it's just that it's a it's a person that you put a hazmat suit on, they go in a test chamber, and it's filled with this, uh, filled with methyl salicylates with the oil of wintergreen, so the whole chamber smells like mint. Uh, it could be a lot worse. It could be, a, you know, some other chemical. It smells horrible, but um, that's a simulant for, uh, it's a simulant for mustard gas uh, in terms of how it permeates through skin and materials. And so this test was set up in the early, I think the early 1990, uh, 93 to 95. 
um, the actual test method was set up by the U.S. Army. And so from there, the, um, the ASTM group kind of adopted it because the, the military procedure is actually a two-hour test. It's set up for, you know, what they would normally see, uh, not limited by wearing an SCBA, things like that. Um, and so what, they, what the ASTM group did is, okay, we need one of these for, um, for first responders and that type of application. So they, they modified the test to be a 30 minute test, changed some other things. And that was kind of, that was, I think it was early, early 2000s when that was done. Uh, and then the NFPA adopted it. And we, we've actually been uh, working the past couple of years, it's been adopted and not just, um, I think it was in the, in the 1994 standard for the kind of first responder applications, but then also went into the, uh, recently went into the 1991, the level A type suits uh, where I was able to come up with new performance requirements and make sure that they all, um, you know, that, that each one of the classes makes sense based off of not just coming up with a number that, that looks different, but make sure it makes sense based off of all the toxicological data that we actually have. You know, how, how protective can this suit be? Um, but the, the basics of the test, um, you know, our, our facility at NC State is one of the, or the only that I know of, um, facility of its kind in an academic institution in the U.S. And that allows us to not just run the test, it allows us to do research and understand it. And so my entire PhD was focused on, I was basically dropped off in this, this chamber that was being built. Uh, it's about a 20, about 20 foot square uh, chamber, environmental chamber. So it, it controls the temperature, the humidity, wind speed, uh, and then the concentration of the simulant. And so, you know, I was, I was coming in and I said, here's the chamber, you know, the standard will tell you everything you need to know about actually putting the person in there and putting the samplers on their body to measure things. Doesn't do a great job of telling you all the, the things that you just kind of have to know by running the test. And so that was a really big part of what I did um, was making sure everything was uniform in the chamber, doing wind mapping and temperature mapping so that we could put, you know, multiple people in there simultaneously. And um, really, it gives us the opportunity, being at the academic institution, to do that research where we can say, okay, well, this is what this means, or this is how this factor affects something, as opposed to, you know, if it's just at a test lab, you know, you may, you may, someone may come in and say, hey, we have to certify this garment, and we'll run it through it past failed, never ask a question about it. And so, what I've been able to do is, is go deeper, um, go deeper into the, the data, and not only say, does it pass or fail, but also what it allows me to do is say, well, this is where the weakness is in this garment. This is where the weakness is in the, in the design where you could have openings and you could have weak points where, you know, the vapors, the gases can infiltrate in. And not just that, but how, how effective they are. You know, you don't have, you know, when you're responding to an incident like that, you know, you don't have, you know, as much time as you possibly could ever want to get this suit on. And so the best, the best, uh, best kind of designs are ones that can be put on exactly the same every single time with, you know, regardless of who's putting it on. So it seals right, mechanism works great. And so what we, what I've been able to see is that, you know, we get a lot of variability in, uh, in the results in some areas of the body or some areas on the, on the garment, um, where we have things that seal sometimes, but maybe not the other time. You know, when, and it just kind of varies. And so like case in point, the face seals, you know, the respirator face seal on a garment, you know, if, if, it's, if it's not like the 91 type suits and it actually has a face seal, um, that's one of the easiest places to, 
to not get right when you're putting it on. And even when you're moving around inside the suit, it can come and dislodge and things like that can come off. Um, but uh, so yeah, we've been able to do a lot of, of actual research and improve the methods so that regardless of people run the test in our facility or any of the other ones, um, you know, whether it's other, other test labs or other military groups, um, that it's more consistent and more repeatable and comparable. Um, the basic operation of the test though, it's a really simple idea. Um, we bring in, we, we typically use uh, firefighters um, as test subjects. They come in and we put these little, we call passive adsorbent dosimeters. They're really just little, almost like stickers uh, that have a powder on them. And we put those all over the body. Um, we put them in areas that are not just uh, near interfaces. So your seams, your seals, your zippers, um, you know, el uh, element interfaces like a glove to a, uh, to a sleeve or something like that. We put them in those areas, but we also put them in areas that have different skin thicknesses. And so if you look at like dermal properties and, and how things are absorbed into the body, um, you know, your skin's not just one thickness all across. Uh, so places like your neck, your armpits, your groin, uh, places like that have thinner skin. They're much more vulnerable to skin absorption or, or dermal absorption of chemicals. And so we want to monitor those areas. And so there's a whole whole layout of where the, the pads actually go on the person. Um, and so we put them in, we, we kind of dress them out in that. You know, if you had, if you had told me a couple years ago that part of my job would be putting stickers on firefighters, I never, never thought that's what I would be doing. But I think I put on probably over the 10 or 12 years that our chamber's been up. I think it was, I think it was, I think it was established in 2008. Uh, so over those 12 or so years, I probably put on 90, I would say 98% of the pads on every subject we've had. Um, and, and so, I mean, we've done test certification testing, we've done testing for military groups, all kinds of things. And so we, we, when we dress them up and we, we put the pads on and then we take them over to our room to put the whole suit on, make sure everything's on there correctly. And then we walk them to our chamber. And like I said, the chamber is completely controlled. We have all of our conditions set, put them in there. And if it's a, if it's a first responder ensemble, they go through about 30 minutes of exercises. And these are more just kind of stretches. Um, just to, to, the thing is what we want to do in that chamber is we want, if there's going to be a break open or going to be a leak in between elements or seals or zippers, we want it to happen in there uh, so that we know it before it gets out into the field. Um, and so, you know, you have the military procedure actually has a couple of different things where they'll go through, um, there's, they can have treadmills where they're walking. They actually lay in a, uh, like a firing or prone position. Cause if you, if you have a gas mask on uh, and you lean forward, anybody that's worn one knows it'll, if it gets heavy enough, it'll come off the face. Um, and if it breaks, breaks that seal, then you can get some, um, some infiltration there. Um, but yeah, you go through the 30 minutes or the two hours, depending on how long it is. Um, it, it gets to be a really long test when you do two hours of in, the, in the chamber there. We try to turn the, uh, the radio on for people because it gets real monotonous. Um, but uh, you go through these exercises and they're, they're either one minute or five minutes each. And then you come out. And when you come out, we do a, a quick decon to get anything off the outside. You progress to the next room where we actually take all the suit off, the, all the, gar or the garment, all of the respirators, the boots, gloves, all that kind of stuff. And then you pass through to the, the last room where we actually collect the samplers. Um, so that, that whole process, you know, typically we can do, you know, six to eight people um, in about six or eight hours, depending on how long the test runs. 
Um, and then we start the analysis. And that's, that's the part, you know, when we, when we talk about standard methods, um, that's one of the things that I noticed when I, when I came on and, and started in the HAZMAT committee for NFPA, um, and also in some of the ASTM standards, uh, standard committees, I realized that there wasn't necessarily always an analytical chemist perspective. Um, and so anything Dylan, even when you get down to like the cleaning methods and things like that, um, you know, I, I've always looked at it as a, from a standpoint of if you don't have a good analytical method, there's no point in doing the test because that's what it's all based on. And so a vast majority of, of my uh, doctorate work was developing that method because it wasn't in the standard method. Um, and I, there's, there's reasons why they don't exactly uh, specify the exact analytical method because people, you know, different labs have different test equipment and things like that. But you can specify certain levels of, of quality. And so that's one of the things I had to come up with is they're like, here, here's these pads that just came off of this subject. Now what? What do you do with them? And that was the hard part. Um, but I think we, we were able, you know, I can take the method that I set up, we can take, you know, 30 samples from a subject and within, you know, 30 minutes, they're ready to be analyzed as opposed to some of the other methods where it was, you know, it was two, three days um, total trying to, trying to get things just to the point of analyzing them. Um, and then, you know, you have to wait two months sometimes for a report. And so what I tried to focus on was getting that report out as quickly as possible. Um, and, and I've done it in the past where we've had a four subject test for an NFPA certification, did it on a Friday morning. I had the report early the next week. Um, and, you know, is that expediency, which is really important uh, to me. Um, I know now that I've, I've, I was able to do that when I was more in grad school because I had a little bit more time on my hands. But now, uh, now it's a little, it takes a little bit longer uh, just to be able to get all the data. But, um, you know, I always look at it in terms of, you know, like I said, we want, if there's going to be a leak or going to be a problem with that suit, we want it to happen in that chamber and in that test uh, because it's not me that pays for it if we don't test it right. Or, you know, and, and I tell our students who, um, you know, could not do the test without, it takes about, probably about 10 people to run the test efficiently. And, uh, you know, I tell them, I got, we got, we got zero room for error here. You know, we have to be accurate. We have to to do everything according to every procedure that we put in place to make sure because you know if we're wrong somebody could get hurt and that's always something you know most i would say most people that work um research you know that, that's not necessarily something they have to think about uh, but i always try to keep that in mind and make sure that we're doing things as accurately as possible and sometimes that that leads to us you know being a little bit uh over cautious in, in terms of what we say about things because we want to make sure that it's right um, and i think that's you know, we don't want to have a bunch of misinformation coming out and have to correct it and that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, that's, um, that's kind of the basics of the test in our, our facility. Um, you know, I can talk for days about it probably, but I, I won't. <laughs> I know it's your baby. It is. It is. It's a weird thing. I know, I know you've been, know a lot about. <laughs> you've, you've kind of been dating it for a while now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> So, but through that, you've done some things like with the particulate blocking hoods uh -huh. and, and also the, the kind of particulate resistant PPE. Um, yeah. I know you did like a, was it three and a half year study on the hoods? Could you kind of, yeah. you're probably sick of talking about it by now, but <laughs> kind of summarize, you know, what were your findings on, on that as well? Because that, that's kind of a, I mean, that's still a new thing for the fire service as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's, it, you know, it's, it's always funny to me and interesting how things progress, right? So I, I started learning with the, the mist and, 
and understanding that test. And, and it turns out that the military procedure for the vapor protective part of the test um, is just half that test. The other half is the particulate test. And so they're, they're very similar standards. Um, and so I kind of focused on the vapor side. And then again, like I said, when all the carcinogen uh, exposure, cancer issues popped up, started really thinking about the particulate side and really got into that. Our first big project where we got into particulates uh, was a DHS funded project where we developed a smoke resistant turnout. Um, and from that project, we I was able to kind of leverage some of the things we were finding there um, and was able to get funding from uh, the assistance of firefighter grants, uh, which, you know, needs to be specifically called out without those those grants i mean you know most of the people that do this research wouldn't be able to so they're a they're an amazing resource um but uh, we were able to get a project uh where we my focus was to really look holistically at these particular blocking hoods as well as traditional hoods um and we started we actually had to submit it twice because the first time people were asking well why do we need why do we need to focus on the hood um, and so I uh, came back and, and revised the proposal a little bit, uh, made it a lot, I think a lot more thorough and came back and were able to get that funding. Because I think in 20, was it was a 2016, I think at FDIC, two of the first particulate hoods were out there. And, uh, you know, they were all certified, right? They're certified NFP in 1971 to that edition that was current. And that's great. They were certified, but there was nothing in there to certify to in terms of particulate protection, thermal comfort. Um, you know, it was really all just kind of thermal protection and mechanical you know, strength of the materials. Um, and so it, the, the particular blocking hood kind of product and it is, it's an amazing example of how quickly, not just the kind of research was done, but the, the research, the researcher, the, the test lab, the standards organizations, the firefighters all came together incredibly fast here. I mean, these products didn't exist five years ago. Um, and now there's, you know, gosh knows how many uh, out there. That was actually one of the harder parts of the project was trying to keep up with, with all the changing designs and constructions and materials. And so our, our kind of plan for this project was look at it holistically in terms of where your trade-offs and how do certain things impact others. And so we started, um, we utilized pretty much everything, every lab that we have in our center uh, from the, our thermal protection lab, where we typically have our pyroman. We set on fire and test, you know, all kinds of garments. But we have, uh, we had developed in conjunction with um, uh, the Army uh, Research Center, one of those in, in Massachusetts, we had developed um, a pyro head previously. And so we were able to take the pyro head and test the, um, uh, test the, the hoods on there. And so part of what we had to do, you know, a lot of these methods didn't exist. You know, it's okay to, you, you can have, you can have a, a head apparatus, whether it's our, our pyro head, or we also, uh, as part of the project, got a, a sweating to mimic our sweating mannequins. Um, one of the reasons that you need a, a, a head form is because most of the mannequins have support bars through the head so that they can stand up. So you have to, you have to either cut the hood or you have to cut the helmet or mask and you have to make modifications. So having these standalone uh, head forms really helped. And so, you know, we, we, can, we can test on material levels for things, uh, but it only gives us so much information. Um, and that was one of the things that I wanted to, to look at there in the thermal side of things 
was to to see you know I think the the TPP requirement thermal protective performance requirement for hoods is like a, a value of twenty I think you know and and you know everybody looks at those values and they're all material level assessments when you take that um, to a full system or a full product you can get differences because it's not you know we don't wear flat pieces of material and so you know a lot of, I actually heard last week somebody was talking about the um, a TPP rating and saying it was you know, you divide it by two and you get, you know, the time, basically the time you have to escape, um, which is, is a bit of a stretch, probably not the best way to explain that. Um, that would be, you know, it's, it's an estimation. Again, it's a, it's a laboratory based test. And so, um, but anyway, with, with some of the hoods, if they passed the TPP requirement that was put in, they were supposed to have, you know, let's say 10 seconds before a second degree burn could be anticipated. We put that on the head form um, and, and lit it up for, you know, six, seven, eight seconds, and we recorded burns there. And so that's the difference that you, that you get because flames are very dynamic. And, you know, as they're hitting the surface, uh, you get different exposures. Uh, but it's also really about the air gaps and how tightly something fits. And so what we found out, we, we were able to take, because um, I wanted to make sure we focused on measuring traditional hoods as well. Because a lot of what was done was done really quickly for developing the standard or revising the standard. Just, there wasn't a lot of time to get something out there. And so we just, I don't think people knew outside of TPP results and material level testing, I don't think people knew what, you know, how, how these hoods, traditional hoods perform. And so we were able to look at different times of exposure. So I think we did five, seven, and nine second exposures. Uh, we did um, test with just the hood by itself. We did tests with a hood and a mask and then the hood mask and the helmet together with the ear flaps down. And it's amazing. Um, one of the things that I came away with was we did one 12 second burn on a typical regular Nomex hood that had the, had a face piece helmet and a, and a jacket over the shoulders of the head form at 12 seconds. And you could only tell when we finished the mask looked horrible, right? It was, it was completely destroyed. The helmet was still pretty much intact. Um, that hood looked like nothing had happened to it for most of it. Um, right around the temple, you know, that area that's not covered by the ear flaps or the helmet or the mask, that was scorched pretty bad. But there's so much protection when you wear everything as it's intended. Um, you know, that's, that's actually one of the outcomes that came out of it. I had a um, firefighter from LA County ask um, if I could send him a picture of that and show him the differences between ear flaps up or down. And it makes a huge difference. Um, it's just that extra layer. Um, and because I think he was saying that most people didn't wear ear flaps there. So it's just another thing that we were able to determine. Um, you know, that's just on the thermal protection side. The other thing we were able to do with the, the pyro head was look at, you know, the, what happens with, with the particulate blocking hoods. And I think, I think when these first came out, everybody just assumed that you were going to take it you know, most, most hoods at that point are two layers of knit material, whether it's Nomex or some carbon-based material. Um, you know, every, everybody just kind of said, okay, we'll take these two layers and we'll throw a membrane in the middle that blocks particles. Um, and some of them were developed and designed that way, uh, but some of them weren't. Some of them, they replaced the inner layer with the membrane. And so what I found out is that the, the material that it's made of had, from, from a, thermal a thermal protection perspective, the material had less of an impact than the actual construction of the, the hood itself. And so if you think of it, the more layers you have, the more protection you're going to have because 
essentially you're trapping more air and air is the best insulator that you can have. Uh, so the more air you have in between those layers, the more insulative it's going to be. And so, yeah, if you put three layers in there, like some of the hoods were three layers, you get a lot more thermal protection, but you sacrifice on the comfort side of things. And so we were able to show that, that some of these where you went from two layers of knit material. And if you, if you look at those knit materials, they're pretty thick. Um, there's a lot of space um, in like a, a knit Nomex type. Um, by replacing that inner layer with more of a membrane, it's a lot thinner of material. You have a lot more heat that can move through it. Um, but you didn't have the extra layer on the back. And those actually performed pretty similarly. Uh, you lost a little bit of thermal protection, but you gained, you can actually, what we found was that thermal thermal comfort wise, more heat was able to escape those hoods that had the two layers with the, the particulate locking layer uh, compared to traditional hoods. So it's not like what I've told people when they've asked about the findings for this is that it's, you know, you don't necessarily have to sacrifice comfort or the other more important was situational awareness because if heat can escape, you can also feel the heat coming in better. Um, and that, that we, we um, corroborated that uh, with some of our field trials that we did. And so that was kind of the biggest thing. And, and the way, you know, people with this project, everybody, every firefighter that I talked to said, okay, well, what's the best hood? Um, and I tell them, it's like, that was not, my goal is not to tell you which, you know, which hood's the best one to buy. Um, I, I try to, tried to always take this from the standpoint of, I want to, I want to impact, like I said before, impact the standard, because if we, I, I have no doubt, we could have made, you know, the best hood that you could buy, but it's only going to affect the people that buy and the people whose departments decide to procure it and, and distribute it. And so I wanted to change the method, the standard, uh, because if we change the standard, we can impact every hood on the market and make sure that they all have, you know, this minimal level or the, the minimum that you need and then manufacturers can go above and beyond that and, and differentiate themselves. And so what it comes down to for me, especially with the, the trade-offs between thermal protection and comfort, um, was that it really depends on where your, your department prioritizes. Um, you know, if it's, if you, if you are going to have you know, more, I guess you'd say more aggressive tactics, if you're going to go in further, if you expect to have more heat, uh, or if you want an instructor hood, you may want to go with three layers. Um, but on the other side, if you prioritize, you know, thermal comfort uh, and, and having the particular protection, because that's one of the things I can definitely tell you, any of the hoods that are certified right now, they block particles. Um, so, and that was one thing we found out. Normally, normally we go through this, this balancing act of increasing protection, decreasing comfort, and it's kind of a, you know, a, a balance there where you're going back and forth. And I wanted to find out was, was particulate protection also on that balance, or was it kind of separate? And what I found out is, you know, I could give you 100% particulate protection with a full range of the balance between thermal protection and comfort. And so it didn't, it really mattered on the, the construction of it as opposed to um, kind of the materials that we use. And so, um, but we had to go through, you know, and look, we, we tried to look at, like I said, the thermal protection, the thermal comfort, um, particulate protection. Uh, at the end of the project, I was finally able to get into the test facility, which is oddly enough about, about five miles away from our, our uh, campus, uh, where they do the fluorescent aerosol test. And so we're able to get in there and work with them uh, to test hoods. Now, typically they just, when they do one of these tests, you go in the chamber, just like our mist facility, you go in, but in this, in this case, it has um, all the particles flying around in the room. And so 
uh, and you take your pictures before and after and that kind of thing. So there's a fair amount of difference between it. But what I, what I was able to get them to do was they had done testing on headphones before. And so I think they had like a, kind of like a, um, a rotating dolly of, of nine headphones. And I was like, well, I only have one day to do this test. So I'm going to bring nine more headphones and we're going to put 18 on there at one, at one time. And so we were able to put all of those in there and, and really go through for the first time, at least for us, to, to be able to see how those hoods perform particulate-wise and compare that back uh, to the material level test that we were able to do. And, and you know, it's, I, there's still some questions that I have about, you know, what, um, what kind of designs are important. You know, one of the things that you always see with that test, the fluorescent aerosol test, is you see the pictures of the person. Um, you rarely, if ever, see the picture of the gear. And to me, that was really important. I spent a lot of time, you know, as they were doffing the people, I spent a lot of time, even when we've done this with human subjects, looking at the gear itself, because to me, it tells me a, a much, much more important story than just the pictures of the person alone. And so one of those that I, I really was striking to me was, you know, the, right now the hoods are designed, uh, some of the design requirements in NFPA say that the particulate blocking hoods don't have to have particulate protection around the face piece. Uh, I think it's about an inch or two around the face piece. And then, the, and then in the top of the head, you don't have to have it. And, you know, when I took the hood off the person, if, and depending on how you wear your hood, you know, a lot of people wear it over the lens of the mask. Uh, some people wear it behind. And, and we found out that that really depends on what type of mask you have for the most part. Um, it was about a 50-50 split between what people did when we did a survey. But if you have that hood over the lens of the mask, it's one of the most exposed pieces of gear that you have because nothing's blocking it. And when people come out, a lot of times when they come out of the fire, uh, in this case, even when the guy was coming out, um, you know, coming out of the, uh, the particulate chamber, one of the first things that you may do is pull that hood right around the neck. And you, you can have the best particulate blocking hood possible, uh, or you can have one of the worst traditional hoods. If it's on the, if the particles are on the outside of that, uh, hood and you put it around your neck you've defeated the purpose of that entire product and that's one of the things I know um, there's been some studies that um, that Gavin Horn did at Illinois uh, where they kind of did some videos showing people you know there are better ways to doff this gear and you know we were able to show that in that test as well and so that that that's one of the things that I do want to bring up in the, the NFPA and standard and say hey you know you might want to you might want to make sure one that the the hoods just go go with complete coverage. Um, even in the top of the head, I, I, I kind of understand the, perp the the kind of thought there was that you're going to have a helmet on, you're going to have um, possibly have a little bit more heat loss through your head, uh, through the top of your head. But I tell you, some of the hoods that we looked at where we did um, thermal comfort or thermal heat loss, total heat loss testing on our hot plate, I actually found some hoods that the material that was in a, let's call it a vented zone, actually performed worse than the hood than the materials beside it. Uh, so it's kind of, they kind of created an unvented zone to some degree, depending on that material. And so to me personally, I've always looked at it and said, you know, if, if I'm going to wear one of these, just go complete coverage. Um, it's going to give you, you know, the best that you can get. Uh, I don't think you're going to get much relief, you know, whether it's thermal, um, uh, thermal comfort, that type of thing from having parts and pieces. I also did, um, with our fluorescent test, I also did bare head forms that just had helmets and masks on. And 
you know, the, the helmets, and I tested a traditional helmet as well as the kind of European style jet helmet just to see what it did. And there was no, no difference in terms of part particulates, those fluorescent particles getting up on top of the head. I mean, it was completely covered everywhere. Um, and so you, you can get stuff up underneath the helmet that could go through. And so not to say that it's going to every single time, but um, it is a possibility. And I think, I think when we talk about fire service and exposures, it's, you know, I've always thought this is, <clears throat> we're not going to have one single, you know, silver bullet that takes this thing out. It's every little tiny piece, every little, you know, crack that you can make in it. And so anything that you can do to re reduce that exposure, I think is really important. Um, and that's, that's kind of um, from the as is, you know, uh, receiving the hoods. That's kind of what we did there. The other part that we still are analyzing data for, uh, and I have, a, I have a graduate student that's working right now looking at durability. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the first things that people said when these hoods came out was, hey, they're, you know, they're five, 10 times the cost sometimes. Um, how durable are they? If they're gonna cost $180 as opposed to, you know, 25 bucks, are they gonna last? And how do we clean them and that kind of thing? And so one of, uh, one of my students who's actually a volunteer firefighter himself um, took on this durability project where he's looking at um, UV exposures. So the impact of being on you know, sunlight, um, looking at additional laundering, uh, donning and doffing, you know, uh, most of, and I won't say all, but most of the, most of the hoods that are out there now, if people have said, you know, if manufacturers said that they've done washing and washing durability to hundred washes, Typically, what they mean is they just washed it 100 times. There was nothing in between, no drying steps, anything like that. And like I said, I won't say all of them because I don't know for sure. Um, but, you know, that, that can tell you what the laundering procedure does. But one of the most damaging things to hoods is when you're putting them on and off. And the ways that people put them on and off and, or don and off them can put a lot of stress on them, depending on how you're doing it, especially if you're trying to be you know, trying to alter that and be a little bit safer and not, not just pull it down around your neck where it's easy. You know, if you're trying to pull it up over the mask, it could, you know, it could cause more, um, more stress on the, on the seams and things like that. You know, case in point, we, one of the first things I did, the, the two guys that run our uh, pyroman facility, um, you know, they're around the smoke coming off of that mannequin and the garments that are in there every day. And so when, you know, when, when we started the project, they had already started using particulate hoods when they go in to change the, the mannequin and dress and things like that. And I said, hey, well, just, just keep up with um, how, how, how many times you're putting this on and off for me. And so I gave them two new hoods. And within about a week, they had 100, 100 on and offs um, and brought it to me and said, hey, this thing's falling apart in the back. And uh, I started looking at it. I was like, well, what's going on here? This shouldn't be coming off part that, like that. And I asked them, I said, well, we'll put it on for me. Show me how you put it on, because they're not firefighters. And they actually put the mask on first and then pulled it over the mask. And that act of, um, you know, kind of pulling it down over the top of the head was putting a lot of stress and actually popping some of the seams. And so then I gave them two more and I said, hey, do this, uh, wear these, but put it around your neck first and then pull it up, you know, kind of how firefighters typically do it. And their first pushback was, well, I don't want to do that because it's got stuff all over it. So, well, just, just bear with me for now and just, just do it. And drastically different after 100 don and dots. Um, so, so doffing uh, the stresses that you put there definitely can impact things. Um, the UV itself, one, I mean, we, we kind of joked about it with my, my grad student because he said he was going to start telling people um, hide your hoods was going to be his campaign. 
because if you just like with your turnout gear, if you leave it in UV light, these materials, your your, your Kevlar, your Nomex, PBI, they all are susceptible to degradation under UV light. And that's what we found out. You know, a lot of these knit materials start to break down and, and it's not that they're going to fall apart, but it's going to be a lot more easy for you to push your finger through it or to, uh, to get a rip or a tear in there. And so, you know, that's, that's one of the things we're trying to keep them out of UV light. And so we're, we're continuing to do our, our studies uh, on durability because I think that's probably going to be the next big change. Um, I don't see too many major changes in the current standard. I know I, I've got a, hopefully we'll be having a presentation with the, the 1971 uh, task group on hoods uh, in the near future to tell them, you know, all of this stuff, share our reports with them. Um, because I do want to say, hey, here's definitely some things that you can change. Um, maybe not necessarily in, in performance requirements, but test methods to make things cheaper and easier and more efficient. And hopefully those, you know, that the savings of that can be, be passed on to some degree. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that's a, like I said, it's a, it's a lot of data. It's a very large project. We're in the middle of publishing. I think we have three papers that were, were currently accepted and, and should be coming out soon. Probably another six to seven that we're working through. Um, I had over at one, at one, at any point in time, I had probably six grad students working on this project. Um, because it, you know, it, it touched on so many different things um, and used every part of our lab pretty much. I mean, we did some, also some cleaning measurements and things like that. Um, not as much as I wanted to, because we were really getting our methods kind of up and, and going at that point. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's been, it was a, it was a long time. I think when I, when I started the project, I didn't have any kids and uh, now I have two. So it's, <laughs> it's been a while. Um, like you said, it's, it's, you know, I've enjoyed, I've enjoyed working on it. And, and one of the things that it's allowed me to do is go into fire departments and talk to them. You know, I've, I've been able to go to a number of volunteer departments in the, in the state here uh, when we could still travel and go places um, and just stop by and say, Hey, you know, sometimes I get, uh, I get some blank looks uh, if I go too in depth. Um, but, uh, but I know they all really appreciate it. And you know, just trying to help them, you know, understand the things to consider when you're, you're looking to buy hoods um, or, or whatever product it is. Speaking of other products, um, have you done any work with, you know, the same materials, but in different areas of our gear? Because I know we've had some manufacturers that are, that are putting these particular blocking chemicals in the, you know, the interfaces, the, you know, the wrist and the, you know, the, the cuffs, the, you know, across the waist, you know, where your, your, your boots, you know, end. Did you do any work with that stuff as well? Yeah, that was um, our first uh, foyer into this, I guess, was, was really how we got into it. And our, uh, the project that we started with DHS, um, you know, they, they, DHS came out with a call and said, hey, we want to improve the interfaces in the turnout. How, how can you do it? And at that point, we said, okay, well, we got some good ideas, but we're going to have to partner with somebody because, if, and that's always important to us and, and you know, to that we work with the manufacturers and make sure that, you know, if we come up with something, we can quickly and easily transition that into actual products that can be used and purchased because we're never going to sell things from the university standpoint. And so we reached out um, to Lion Apparel uh, or Lion First Responder, I guess is what they are, um, and, and said, hey, are you interested in working on this? And so with that, building that partnership, we went through and said, okay, 
what can we do? And that was actually, um, I think one of the first materials that kind of came around that we, we started looking at to use was um, DuPont came out with the uh, Nomex Nanoflex, uh, which is in a lot of the hoods, right? And so um, pretty much from a particulate standpoint, you, you really have two options right now. Um, it's either the, the kind of non-woven filtration type material that the, the Nanoflex did, uh, or it is some sort of kind of PTFE membrane base, uh, similar, similar to a moisture barrier, but uh, different enough that it allows some air to move through. Uh, so you got two manufacturers making those. So that, that, that's pretty much what you have in terms of hoods as well as you know, other, other uh, you know, tur full turnouts and things. So what we did, um, we, we started using the Nanoflex and said, okay, well, where can we put this? And, and what we did was to start with, we started a baseline because I wanted to know how does the whole suit perform? You know, like I said before, you know, a lot of this stuff is built off of standardized material level tests. But we wanted to look at everything and say, my goal for the whole project was to say, I want to give a firefighter a suit and they don't know I've done anything to it. That, you know, they can put it on almost exactly how they do now. But now instead of, of just having a regular turnout, now they have particular protection as well. And so that was always my, you know, what I kept kind of the guiding principle of that project. And so when we started it, we said, okay, well, we did some aerosol testing. And, and, and matched up really well with that, those initial pictures that came out of the IAFF project in 2015 or 2016, um, which was nice to see that you know, we were able to replicate that because you, you really only get one, one person when you do that test normally. Um, and so we said, okay, we, we know the risks are a problem. We know the, the waste is a problem and we know that the uh, right around the calves and the boot interface is an issue. Uh, at this point, we said, well, we're not going to focus on the uh, hood to jacket interface because that's when we were just starting uh, trying to get over to our hood project. And we knew that there was particular hoods out there. So we focused on the other parts of the gear that we could control. And so we took some of the wristlet material um, and we put some of the Nanoflex in there and said, okay, well, can we, can we put that in there to block stuff? And then we went down to, um, you know, the calves. And we said, well, how are we going to do this? So we actually started with almost like an anklet. Uh, it went down from the calf all the way to the bottom of the foot, essentially. Um, so, okay, let's, let's give this a shot. Um, and that, that was those two interfaces. Okay. And, then, and then we looked at, um, you know, what do we do with the interface between the jacket and the pants? Because, you know, just anecdotally, you can talk to, when you talk to firefighters, you know, they, they'll tell you that, you know, that I was, if they were climbing up a ladder or something like that, you can feel the heat coming up there, even with the SCBA on. Uh, or up the pant legs for that matter. Um, and we know that was an area that's just kind of open. I mean, any jacket and pant, if there's no, you know, no real kind of joint uh, union there, it's not going to block anything. And so what we went did with was uh, essentially what we call a particulate skirt, um, almost like a powder skirt that you would see in a ski jacket. Uh, something that would just kind of fit tightly around the waist once it zipped up. And we actually took our uh, original kind of baseline turnouts, took those back to the manufacturing facility, and in one week, actually it was like two days, we were there, we prototyped this whole thing, brought it back, and at the end of the week, we did our testing and uh, did our, our uh, fluorescent aerosol test. And the very first time we did it, you know, we didn't see anything leaking inside that suit onto that person. And so we, you know, we walked away going, okay, this is a, technically we, we've, we've already succeeded, right? So we've already, 
gotten everything that we wanted to have out of this, it works. It stops the particles from coming in. But when we looked at it, we said there's no way anybody's going to use this because you had to change the way you did things. And so the biggest problem, you know, we had some, some modifications, some optimization to do in like the zipper and things like that for the jacket. But the biggest problem was the, the bottom, the lower leg. And so, because I actually, when we came back, I had a, I actually had a missed test that week as well and had some of the firefighters in that were, were doing that test. And I walked over and said, Hey, put these on, just, just, you know, tell me what you think about them. And so he put the, put the pants on and, and said that, you know, the, uh, the, what we called anklet at the time kind of felt like a, you know, like a pretty thick gym sock or, or something like that. So nothing, nothing too bad and put the jacket on, said it felt fine. And he started taking it off and I was waiting, waiting for this. And he got down to, to where he was taking the pants off. And he was like, how do I get out of this? Cause it was really pretty tight to the leg. And so our problem was you couldn't stage the gear the same way. And you couldn't put the pants over the, over the boots so that you could easily step in pull the pants up and go. And so that was one, that was a, a non-starter for us. So we had to figure out what to do. And, and ultimately what we did is we just cut it off. We cut it back to uh, a calflet, which sits right on the inside of the leg. And um, you could stretch it over the boot. And then when you pull it up, it's intended to flip back down inside the boot. And so we, we went through a number of different iterations where we went out to the fire stations, had them try it on. Um, and then once we had our final kind of design, we went back to all of our, our mannequin tests. We did our thermal protection and we did our, our sweating mannequin tests uh, to see how comfortable it would be. Um, I also did fit and function trials uh, where we had people, we had firefighters come in and just go through a whole range of exercises um, under our, under our uh, human, human subject protocol and their ratings. And so what we were able to find out is, you know, my biggest question was, is it possible to give you particulate protection and not make it so that it's too hot to wear or not make it that you're impacting, you know, thermal protection significantly? Because we wanted to give, just like with the hoods, we wanted to give this additional type of protection without changing other things. And that's always hard. You know, you don't, you never quite know when you put another material or a different material in how it's going to impact the other performance of the garment. And so that's one of the things we started with and looked at. Um, and we were able to do that. Um, the, it, actually, one of the, one of the sweating mannequin results, I had to check two or three times with the guy that ran the test for me in the lab because we got down to the same decimal place in the results. And I was like, this, you must've just copied the wrong cell or something over, but no, it really was almost identical. Uh, because you know, you always worry about, um, you know, changing and, and impacting something kind of, and not realizing. And so that, that's where we, we really wanted to make sure that everything stayed as consistent as possible. Um, and so in, that was a, you, know, you talk about fast response, that was a, probably 18 month project from, from start to essentially finishing our part of it. And then we were able to kind of give, finish up our DHS funded effort, give that over to Lion uh, as a, um, you know, we, the, the university actually holds a patent on part of it. Uh, they licensed it over to them to be able to use. And one of the most incredible things just personally for me is just being able to, to see, you know, when different departments buy it. Um, and it's, it's really cool to be able to see that, you know, the, the product that we made that spent so much time on really tried to make sure that it was something that the firefighters could, could not just benefit from, but one that they would want to use and want to adopt. Um, and, you know, I know it's gone a lot of different directions and, and been, been adjusted a little bit, but I really think it's a, 
it's a great step in, in like I said before, that direction of here's a, another tool that we could possibly use to limit exposures. Um, and so it's a really, it was a really neat experience. And, you know, I'm already looking at where we can extend that and how can we use it further. And there's been talk of, well, can you put some of these types of things in wildland gear? Um, because right now, you know, they're, to me, you know, just looking through the research, the wildland firefighters always follow um, pretty far behind the research from the, the structural side because everybody focuses a little bit um, much more heavily on the structural side just because there's, you know, there's more of those types. And, and so what can we learn from that we can then apply there? But not just from there, where, where can we apply to other areas? And one of the projects building off of all this, this whole area, you know, because we, we really focus on the gear and how it can help you um, and hurt you to some degree. You know, we always, that's one of the things I always talk about, you know, we talk about these balance between protection and comfort, but there's also one uh, that I've talked about in, in kind of the roles of the turnout in contamination and protection, right? So if you get, if you have something that blocks things, it's not just disappearing. Those particles are still on the gear. And now we have to understand what kind of contact hazard it is and things like that. And so, you know, from, from structural to wildland, one of the things that I've found out basically you know, this week, hopefully, um, I will be starting the next direction and that is fire investigators uh, and really looking at what they have because there, there's, you know, there's some, there's some really good things that came out of the um, International Association of Arson Investigators. Uh, they have a white paper out now talking about what they should, you know, best practices. Uh, but as far as the standards concerned, there's, there's really nothing to say you can or can't wear this um, or what should you wear, what shouldn't you wear or even how effective any of it is. I mean, you can go to one one place and they're wearing a t-shirt and a pair of uh, kind of station wear pants um, up through Tyvek suits and things like that all the way to full turnouts. And so, you know, that's that's kind of the next the next thing we're aiming at right now. Um, and hopefully we'll, I'm, I'm looking to get started on that one pretty soon. So really try to take all this from the hood project, uh, the smoke resistant turnout and, and not just leave it as a one-off, right? So we, we try to say, okay, well, yeah, we made this product or we made these different test methods, but now how do we apply them to that next person that needs them, that next, you know, kind of operational uh, relevant area that, that needs it. Perfect. Now that'll be interesting to see because you're right. It is a free for all when it comes to, <coughs> excuse me, the arson investigators. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. I, I've learned quite a bit um, in the, in the past. I think we have been working on that proposal and idea of that for the past I don't know, since December, probably 2018 was when it came up and, and came up because of these other projects. And someone just came over um, and said, hey, you know, what can we can we learn anything from your research? Um, and I, I really looked at it and said, hey, you know, that area is right for its own project. You don't need to you don't need to pick, you know, pick up the scraps from anywhere else. And we can really focus in and do hopefully a very good job of understanding that exposure even better. Because one of the things that shocked me when I started looking into it you know, typically, I guess, structural firefighters, you know, you may go, depending on how busy you are, our, our survey that we did said somewhere between six to 10 fires a year, maybe. It was about average for, I think we had over 700 people respond. And so six to 10 fires a year, and I was talking to this arson investigator, and he said, you know, I went to four, invest, four or five investigations in a week. Um, you know, so that, that, it may not be going in and seeing things when they're at their highest concentrations of, of chemicals or particulates, but it's a lot more of an exposure over time. And so that's really what we want to look at and try to understand. There's been a couple studies done, but we really want to build on those. 
No, I, I appreciate you looking into really two areas that are, like you said, they've been neglected, the wildland and the investigators. You know, I always talk about for the investigators that, you know, just because the fire is out does not mean that scene is safe. Oh, yeah, definitely. So, so let me ask you this. Let me, uh, I'll get you kind of getting out of here, at least starting that way, because I know you've, you've already given up a lot of your time. But I'd be remiss if I didn't, you know, talk to a textile, to a gear guy, and then bring up those, those magical letters um you know the let's talk about all the you know what's coming the fluorine what? the whole pfoa pfos all that stuff you know yeah. what are uh, what are your thoughts on all that so i think you know i remember i remember exactly you know when when i first heard of this issue uh was not in a situation of firefighting um or firefighter gear uh, as you know, coming coming through the the Wilson College of Textiles, you know, doing my undergrad degree here at, at NC State, I I had an internship working for Cotton Incorporated. Um, their their world headquarters is is right down the road from us, and so as a student working there, I was you know kind of learning how to apply chemical finishes and things like that for you know anything and you know dyeing also, uh, but looking at looking at water repellency, stain repellency, all that type of stuff. And so I remember back in probably, let's say 2000, probably about 2004, 2005 area, uh, maybe 2006, somewhere in there. Uh, I was working, one of the, the uh, supervisors I was working in, uh, w working with, we were really trying to make uh, cotton t-shirts and things like that act a little bit more like some of your athletic brands. Um, and by, by trying to do that, adding some repellency so they just didn't absorb as much moisture. That's one of the problems with cotton. It picks up a lot of moisture and makes it, you know, heavy. And so I remember we were, we were looking at it at that point and looking at some of these fluoro uh, chemicals. And I remember them saying, hey, well, we're, we're going to have to start, you know, kind of start over with some of these because we have to, we're phasing out um, this, the, the, uh, the certain, uh, basically known as C8 type chemistry and, uh, or, or eight carbons. And so I remember it back then. And, and, you know, one of the things I try to take it from a standpoint of, I guess, risk assessment and, and what, how can you really, what, what do we need to know? Right. So what do we need to know about it? So I remember, uh, when this first came up for me after that first initial thing, uh, in terms of the fire service, uh, I saw the, the blog posting that kind of went out, um, really starting to, to point it out. And we got questions from firefighters across the country saying, well, what do you think about this? And what do you know about it? And do we need to be concerned about these chemicals? And so one of the things that I will say is I went through that because uh, it, was, it was actually, I remember it very vividly because it was the, the day I wrote a response to the, the firefighter. Uh, and it was the morning my wife was going into labor with my daughter. Um, so pretty memorable moment there. I was like, hang on just a second. Let me finish this. Let me finish this writing real quick. Um, but <laughs> my, my daughter was born the next day. Um, but um, yeah, I, I just distinctly remember that. And, and really what I was telling them was I was looking at the, I was looking at the article uh, and, and looking at it in terms of, you know, my, actually the classes that I teach are in, um, and I'm not, the ones that I have taught are in the formation of, of these fibers and the polymers 
that make them up. And so how you make Kevlar, how you make Nomex and, and what the actual chemical structure of those are. And so I, I wanted to correct for them one of the issues that I saw in there. And, you know, I've always tried to approach this as respectfully as possible um, because I understand really well what it means to have a family member, you know, diagnosed with cancer and try to search for answers. I, I completely understand that. My mom um, is uh, currently uh, doing pretty well, but she, she found out about three years ago that she has type of leukemia. And so she's been, you know, battling through that. And my grandfather, you know, had multiple myeloma. And so, you know, I always try to take that perspective and say, you know, everybody wants to know answer wise, why did this happen? And so that's a, the, the mentality I kind of approached while I was reading it. And I just wanted to clarify for the firefighters, some of the things from my experience kind of teaching this area, you know, what was, what was kind of just followed in some of the chemistry background. And by starting out telling them that, you know, this not saying at all that this is not a hazard and not something to worry about. Um, I, I do think that, I don't think you'll find many people after, after the C8 panel did their studies and, and even more things that have been done recently, I don't think anybody's gonna negate the fact that these chemicals can cause significant health problems and have been related to them. Um, and in all likelihood, it's probably best to move away from them just for the sake of that. But one of the things that I was looking at was the, the um, you know, C8. Um, when you're talking about water repellents and you say C8, that's when you're referring to those types of chemicals. But anything that has eight carbons doesn't necessarily mean it's a water repellent that has fluorine in it. And that was one of the problems in the just the chemistry there that I wanted to, you know, make sure I, I clarified and for the firefighter. And because um, you actually, it just so happens that one of, Kevlar is made of two molecules, basically building blocks that you just repeat over and over again. And one of them just happens to have eight carbons in it. And so that was the, that was where that miscommunication came from. It was, there's eight carbons in this, C8 is PFLA. And that's, that's not necessarily the thing, uh, the, the, the correct way to look at that. And so, but what I did there is I, I tried to tell them from my research and what I had looked at, even looking, excuse me, even looking within that, you know, a couple of days uh, when, when I found out about it, you know, where are the possible exposures? Because when I you know, mentioned looking at this in terms of a risk assessment, um, I actually teach another class, which is impact of industry on the environment and society. And I use this exact example as a case study for how people, you know, to, to, for the students to kind of look at both sides of a story and say, well, okay, is it a hazard? Is it not? Is it a risk? Is it not? Is it not? Because hazard doesn't equal risk. And so when you look at the EPA's risk assessment process, there's a number of steps. And I think we have some of those answers for those steps. But the first step is hazardous notification. And that's kind of everything that the, the C8 panel did, you know, from, the, from, from Rob Balot's uh, um, uh, case uh, where he, we got the, the class action lawsuit, DuPont paid for all that. And that was a, an amazing, you know, kind of first of its kind study that thorough. And so we've identified this as a hazard, but you can have the most hazardous substance possible but if you don't know what the exposure is, you can't say what the risk of getting those health effects are. You know, I kind of look at it in terms of, you know, everybody knows that, you know, if you had a great white shark, right? Pretty hazardous animal, right? Um, and if you get in the ocean with them, then there's a high possibility that it could, it could kill you. But if you were able to take that same animal, put it into an aquarium, you can go see it and there is no exposure. So there is very little, if, if any risk. 
the hazard is still the same, but it's about the exposure. And that for me, you know, going, going through and, and looking and listening to the previous uh, things that have been done, uh, Graham Peasley study that recently came out, uh, looking at all of this, you know, I think I have a lot of the same questions that, that they do in terms of we really need to define the exposures um, because we know the hazard is there. But one of, the, one of the concerns that I have, and I think one of the things that sets people off kind of thinking about this and, and, and going immediately as, as far as, you know, it, I guess my, my problem is, you know, I, I don't want to miss all the other things and blame it all on one chemical. Because I've done tests where I've seen, you know, so many different carcinogens just on firefighter gear itself. I think it's part of the problem, but it's not the only problem. And I think we need to focus on all of it. And, and yeah, we can definitely have individual groups looking at individual ones because it is a problem overall. The, you know, like I said before, the cancer is uh, epidemic is is a problem that's too big for any one place to solve, any one you know, research group. And so when I look at it, um, you know, I see a lot of times numbers numbers kind of presented in part per billion, part per trillion, and you know, I even even me, I still look at some of those numbers, and it's hard for me to conceptualize what that means. Um, and I think even for, you know, kind of general people, firefighters, they look at that and it's, it's a very abstract unit. And so the way that, um, one of the things I think we should have a standard unit to be able to compare because it's really difficult if you don't. And so one of the things we've been looking at is reporting those values in terms of massive chemical on surface area of fabric. So you may see it as nanograms per square centimeter. And we know how much uh, surface or how much fabric we're using in a standard turnout. And if we can take that and we can then have an amount on there, we can figure out, you know, what's the worst case exposure if everything on this gear was to be absorbed. Um, you know, one of the other things I look at when people talk about it in terms of part per billion or part per trillion numbers is those are water quality. That's what water quality standards use. And they make a little bit more sense for me anyway, thinking of it in terms of water. Because when you, when you look at exposures and, and, different routes of exposure. A drinking a chemical uh, or getting it through drinking water is a very different process, um, and, you know, significantly different than touching a surface that has an there. And so I think understanding the differences there is really important. Um, you know, not to say that, you know, we shouldn't do anything because we just don't know. Um, there is a lot that we know. Like I said, we know that these things are hazardous, but we also don't know you know, what's the extent that the exposure occurs? And, and I know there's been a lot of talk about, you know, being in dusts and things like that. I could definitely see, you know, one, like I said before, one of the things I think about there is if dust is coming off of a firehouse that has these fluorinated chemicals on it, you know, if you're not cleaning your gear, it also has the other things there. And so it's, I think it's going to be really difficult uh, as it, as it always, it's always very difficult to, to relate an exposure to cancer uh, occurrence just really because you know cancer can take a long time to show up over you know it's very very long latent period for symptoms to show but um, so it's really difficult to compare but I think I think we're getting closer and the, the awareness is there for people to look at it and there's a lot of studies going on right now um, including some of the things that we've done you know I, I've I've had a, a student that uh, just finished up his PhD where he was looking at this um, and did some, did some, I would say durability tests, but also took a range of about 20 years of gear, extracted them uh, using our extraction techniques that we use for cleaning um, and uh, or cleaning assessment anyway. 
and we put those and, and essentially we saw what what you could expect you know in from 2000 I think 2006 to 2010 somewhere in there we saw, saw spikes of PFOA on the gear um, and then after that there was nothing measurable in our methods um, PFOS uh, the sulfate version which is used in the foams uh, or has been using the phones. We never detected any of that on the gear whatsoever because this was all new gear, just legacy. Um, probably one of the one of the good things about the fact that we hoard things in our in our center. Um, we have a lot of gear that's never been used uh, in in the field. And so, you know, that's kind of what we saw. We looked at moisture barriers. We looked at thermal liners uh, in those. And it's really really a small scale pilot study because we had to kind of take whatever we could find that hadn't been used. But the other things that we did was to look to see, and this is one of the other questions. And, you know, like I said before, I think there's in all, in all kind of reasonableness, I think we're, we're moving away from them. I think anyway, um, the question I have a lot of times is why are they there? What, what benefits do you get from having them there? And then what happens if they're not there? And so one of the things that I, I could, I do want to look at and it just kind of occurred in some, some conversations I was having just last week. Um, you know, one of the things with fluorinated water repellents, the reason they're used and they're kind of known as the ultimate water repellent is because they, you know, we always think of it in terms of water repellent, but they're oil repellent as well. And essentially, if you want to think about how they work, you put them on a surface and eight carbons just happens to stand up very straight on the surface, kind of like a bed of nails and you put a droplet of water on it that droplet um, or a ball or something like that, that ball is going to sit on the surface. And that's what the surface of these fabrics look like when you have those eight carbon chains up there. You know, when you switch to six carbons, it folds over a little bit. It's not as effective. You go to four, it's probably not as effective. You go to longer chains, probably not as effective as well. It just so happens that eight carbon chain is really effective. And that's why it's used so much or was used. And so, you know, one, one of the things there is to understand again, why they're there. And so if we're only worried about limiting water and, uh, or giving it water repellency, that's one thing. But if you go to, if we take them away completely and if the replacements can't give you the same surface uh, properties, surface tension uh, and, and repellency properties of oil, you know, if, if you go and have a petroleum fire or you know, gasoline or something like that, it could soak into the gear. And that's one of the things I want to look at and see it can with any of these replacements, and these are the kind of questions that people should ask, can they still repel those types of compounds? Because at that point, you go from having gear that you know, was relatively clean to now it may be soaked. And if you go into a fire, is that a potential thermal hazard? So that's another thing to think about. Um, but not just that, if they repel oils, they also keep things, ideally, keep things cleaner. Um, and so are you getting the soot and the smoke and the other, the other particles, because those, those other chemicals that are on the fire scene, a lot of them are very oily, very sticky. And so those are the kind of things I think we need to look at and say, and balance. And it, and it is a balance. And I think, you know, if you look through, you know, look through all types of products, the, one of the basic principles of toxicology is that the dose makes the poison. Um, and when you, when you look at that, you can have things like, um, you know, warfarin. Warfarin is rat poison, but it also helps for heart conditions. And, and so when we think of it in terms of toxicology and pharmacology, is there a safe level uh, that could be used or is there not? And it may be that there's not. And so I think, um, you know, I think right now we're thinking of it in terms of, you know, what's really called the precautionary principle, 
which is we don't know. So we're going to back off and not use it as much. Um, and, and I think that's probably a route, the best route to go. And I think, I think we've been moving that way anyway. And I've talked to a lot of manufacturers uh, recently that have basically said the same thing. You know, they're, some of them have said, you know, I'm not looking to, you know, whatever the firefighters want is what we want to give them. And so if they want that, that's what we're going to try to provide. And, and so they've, you know, I've, I've talked to a number of them trying to figure out, can we measure? Because these chemicals, there's like, you know, four to 7,000 of them. And, you know, one of the, one of the problems I always have with, with chemical, you know, in products and, and manufacturers anyway, is when you see something that says like, um, another example of it would be like the uh, bisphenol A or BPA, right? So BPA is used in, in making the plastic water bottles. And so pretty much any, and as a polycarbonate material, um, it just happens to be one of the building blocks there. So if you flip over a polycarbonate water bottle, it had a little symbol that says BPA free probably. And my question and what I talked to my classes about is, okay, that's great. You told me what's not in it, but what did you use instead? And so, um, you know, many times it's not necessarily the, the entire process changes. It's just, okay, well now we'll move to this one that you know, may not have anything associated with it just yet. So I think that's, that's a, where, I'm, where I'm looking at it right now. Do you think that there's any type of safe alternatives out there? that we, we know of, you know, option B or C for this stuff instead of using these, these fluorine chemicals? I mean, I know there's, there's definitely some water repellents uh, that are not fluorine-based that give you really good water repellency and some level of oil repellency. Um, and, and things are still being developed. You know? and, and I think anytime we have a situation like this where something, you, know, you, tell, you tell manufacturers, you tell chemical industry, whatever, you can't use this anymore. Well, they're not just going to fold up shop and, and not, you know, try to sell products anymore. So many times that is kind of a, an initiator for innovation and development. And so can we, if there's not something right now, I think there, there probably are um, kind of intermediate stopgap met, uh, um, materials that could be used. Um, but I think, I think if we, does, if we completely outline the problem and the conditions and say, you know, I, I think I've, I've heard a number of people say it's, it's a lot of it right now is about being, about being smart with dealing with the gear itself and trying to limit your exposure completely, right? So it's, yeah. it's anything that you can do, you know, putting it into, you know, not, not wearing it into the station or, you know, one of the things that just personally, like I said, I got two really small kids and seeing, you know, pictures of kid of babies in gear, you know, it really struck me one day and I was like, you know, that, why don't don't do it um you know i know it looks great it's a great photo op but and it's probably not that big of a deal because it's such a, a acute short exposure probably doesn't do anything but you know i wouldn't want to take the risk now with the things that we know about gear you know doing you know yeah just like you said uh i was guilty of doing that with my first kid and the second when the second one came along i knew better and i felt horrible about doing it to the first kid but then you know think about all the you know, when we have schools come in and they, you know, we have the, you know, exactly. we're doing the tours and we let them try on our gear or, um, you know, doing the FDIC stair climbs and, you know, everybody wearing their stuff and, and, or exercising, you know, I see all the time, like, you know, uh, we have the mentality of, we need to practice like we play yeah, yeah. and, and wear all that stuff. And, and we need to now get away from doing that and just use it for when it's necessary. And that's, that's it, you know, winter time. You know, in Ohio, that's our, a lot of our winter jackets. Mm -hmm. 
you know, yeah. it, it shouldn't be that way. Yeah, definitely. I completely agree. You know, we, we go, you know, I even think about it now, like we go out to elementary schools and just take, you know, it's not used gear, but we still take that out there just to show them what it looks like. Um, you know, I've even, you know, I think, I think about that and, you know, there's, there's definitely a, a trade-off there and, and somewhere we can say, should, you know, how much of this should we do? And that, I think that also is part of understanding the exposures that are there and, and what's actually possible. And so that's where we're hoping to go next. And, you know, I know a lot of people are looking at dermal absorption. That's one thing I want to look at. We have a great, you know, kind of renowned veterinary school at our college, at our university. Uh, we've worked with them to do skin surrogate kind of dermal absorption studies, um, comparing back to pig skin. Uh, pig skin is one of the best uh, analogs for human skin when you're doing dermal studies. <laughs> a lot of people... A lot of people like to use uh, rat and mice for dermal studies, but it's not as great. Um, you know, it, started, it's, it, it kind of overestimates a little bit more. Um, but I, uh, they're just used because they procreate quite a bit, and they're easy to easy to kind of maintain. But um, you know, trying to understand does the PFOA go into the skin if it's just on the surface? Can we put it on fabric and then put contaminated or you know finished fabric on the skin? In that contact, does anything transfer? And I think that's where we want to get to is understanding and that's kind of what we've been building up. Not just because like I said, I look at it as to me, a chemical is a chemical. Basically, if I want to know the whole process is the same, but now I'm just inserting PFLA or benzoapyrene or phthalate. I want to know how they all transfer because they're all going to be there. They're all going to be in that fire scene. And, and so, you know, the other thing to consider is it's not just from the gear itself, but, and we haven't really talked about the AFFF, which is a completely different, you know, I'm, uh, I would be, that was one of my biggest concerns when I found out about it to begin with, because those are just sprayed everywhere and getting the groundwater and, you know, you never know. Um, but then also looking at it in terms of these, these uh, PFAS chemicals are used in a lot of commercial products that are in homes. And when they burn, you know, that's a whole nother exposure, you know, outside of all the other chemicals, combustion products that are coming off. And so I think anything that we typically do, whether it's the particulate hoods, the, you know, the, the ensembles that we use, on-scene decon, that can cut down on that side of things, right? So anything you're exposed to on the, on the fire scene, if we can do anything, whether it's wipes, whatever it is, to clean that off, that helps from that exposure and helps limit from that side. And then just how we handle the gear afterwards and make sure, making sure it's clean and that kind of thing will help on the, the other side. And, and so, um, until we can get to a point where we have, you know, something that we are very safe uh, or believes to be very safe and works, gives us the same performance, uh, at least, you know, mostly the same performance uh, that, that we need. So it's, it's kind of, like I said, my, it, it, to me, it depends on what the expectation is for what that finish is going to do for you and what could happen if it's not there. So. Perfect. I appreciate you answering that. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's, it's uh, yeah, you know, it's it's been a hot one topic. of those one of those topics. Yeah, it is the topic, really. Yeah. Let me start now. Really get you out of here. I got, but I do want to do one thing quick. I've I've got, I've got the twenty five questions, and huh? it's not not that you actually have to answer twenty five questions, but I've got a list. I've got numerous random kind of questions per each number. So just if you would give me a, a number, and I'll. We'll do a few of these, and, and this right. is more personal kind of stuff, not just yeah. Yeah. Wolfpack uh, business stuff. Let's, uh, let's go with 12. <coughs> oh, excuse me. All right, here's your choice. Zoo or amusement park? 
Oh, man, Zoo. Uh, I love both of them, but I really, I've always really liked animals. I can just sit and watch like National Geographic for hours. Um, but uh, yeah, Zoo, especially now uh, with little kids. I took my took my daughter to uh, the zoo first time. She was, I think, was a little over one. It was, it was just incredible to watch. Um, just watch her see everything. So yeah, definitely Zoo. Yeah, I think the kids definitely, you end up going with the zoo more than amusement park. At least at this point, you know, because yeah. I've, I've got mine one, mine's a little too. I'm sure it'll get to a point when they're actually able to ride everything. Oh, yeah. That yeah. that may go back to the other side there. Yeah, definitely. Definitely can see that. All right. How about another one? Uh, let's do 17. Favorite actor or actress? Oh, man. I don't know. Uh,. Maybe, let's see. I may have to go. Uh, I love Marvel movies. I think I've seen every single one of them. Um, so we'll, we'll go with the one that kicked it all off with uh, Robert Downey Jr. Very nice. Iron Man. That's a good one. Um, how about another one? Uh, 19. All right. Do you have a special place you like to visit regularly? Man, a special place? Right now, uh, I don't get out of my house a whole lot, but... Uh, Pretend none uh, of this stuff was happening. Pretend this is 2019. <laughs> and you had, you had freedom. So, this is, this, this is a, bit, a bit of an you know, easy, easy answer, I guess, for me. But um, So, my wife and I both met, uh, or we met each other at the, Wilson, or at the College of Textiles there at NC State. I actually got married on campus. Um, so at the, at the textiles courtyard, there's a fountain there. And so my wedding was right there. Um, and so when I was going in every day, you know, I walked past the place where I get married or got married every single day. So it's just, just a little something I'll stop there every now and then, um, and just kind of think about it. So probably there, I mean, the, uh, I, I've been at the college since my undergrad and, uh, you know, it's, it's an amazing, amazing thing to be able to say that, you know, in some of the rooms where I teach classes, the place that I gave my first exam as a professor was the room that my wife got dressed in for our wedding. It's, it's crazy. Um, but uh, yeah, so probably, probably there. That's pretty cool. I'm not even going to ask you another one. We're going to, we're going to end it on that. That's <laughs> All right. <laughs> happy for her. But where can everybody, if they, if they wanted to send an email or something, where, where can they track you down at? Yeah, email is probably the best way. Uh, it's just rbormand uh, at ncsu.edu. And um, if you just kind of search NC State Textiles, uh, that'll take you to the college's website uh, or, or the Textile Protection and Comfort Center. Uh, that'll come up for the, the center itself. Uh, but yeah, email is the best way. And I can actually, I'll give you all my, uh, I got a couple of reports that you can link to on the website for the, uh, the summary report for our hood project. I tried to write it specifically, so it was mainly just takeaways for people. Um, also, have some videos there that you can kind of watch on online. But yeah, that would be best. Then, and uh, you know, we I try to anybody any firefighter that gets gets a, a question to me, um, I try to help any way I can. If I don't know the answer, I'll see if I can find somebody that does. That's awesome, perfect. And I can I'll put all the links on the uh, the twenty five live under under your episode there. Not a problem. Um, I can't thank you enough. Yeah, I really no, I, appreciate I, your time. It was, I mean, very enlightening. 
Thank um, you. Man. I appreciate it. Uh, like I said, I'm honored to be here, and it's been, it's, it's. I'm so thankful to be able to work with this this uh, whole area. Uh, I tell people all the time, you know, we we think of. I think a lot of people when you think of firefighter, you kind of see that silhouette of you know the helmet and the, the gear and things, and it's so much more personal for me now. And, I, and you know, I know when I hear firefighter, I think of specific people, um, and so that's just doing what we can, um, trying to help in any way that I can. Perfect. All right. So all my listeners out there, um, comment, share this show, like it, you know, get it out there as much as you can. And, uh, you know, he's Dr. Brian Orman. I'm Jim Bernica. And, uh, I'll talk to you guys next week. Take care.